scandal upon scandal upon scandal. A veritable heap of scandalous scandals. That is what we have on our hands this morning. It is as if with every detail that John chooses to include in this story, it's as if with every detail John decides to include that he is looking to offend one segment of his original audience or another. Now granted, 2,000 years later, the story actually comes off as pretty tame, but back then, 2,000 years ago, this story would have been downright salacious. We're talking tabloid-worthy stuff. It's true, it's true. And I know I'm building this up a lot, but, but there's a lot of juicy stuff here, so let's just get right to it. The first layer of scandal that we find in this morning's story comes to us in the very opening lines, just as John is setting the scene. We're told that Jesus entered the village of Sychar on a, a hot, hot, dry day, and parched from his travels, he plops down next to a well. The disciples are off somewhere getting food to eat, and Jesus is all by his lonesome. We're told that then a woman approaches the well as Jesus is lounging there in order to draw some water. Jesus asks her to, to draw him some water to drink, and then he ends up chatting her up for quite a very long time. Maybe you noticed our reading today went on for a very, very long time. That is because they were having a very extended, very involved conversation. And what you need to know is I actually cut out half of their conversation in order to fit it into today's bulletin. That is how long of an involved of a conversation they were having. Now again, this does not seem like a big deal to you and me. But according to the Jewish sages of old, men were to avoid all unnecessary conversation with women to the extent that if a wife spoke to an unrelated man on the street, she could be divorced without the monetary settlement that she would otherwise be due. And what's more, according to other ancient sources, if a man and woman were alone together for more than 20 minutes, it was automatically assumed that they were doing more than talking, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. This is why that when the disciples come back to the well, they were flabbergasted. They couldn't believe their eyes to see Jesus talking to this woman alone. The story even says they wanted to ask Jesus, what do you want with her? Why are you talking to her? But John somewhat hilariously writes that none of the disciples could muster the nerve to actually ask these questions of Jesus. So that's the first layer of scandal that we find in this morning's story. It's a scandal of propriety where Jesus is talking to this woman alone. To find a second layer of scandal, we don't actually have to look much further in the story. Because we already know that this woman that Jesus is talking to isn't just a woman, but she is a Samaritan woman. Jesus, after all, is in a Samaritan territory. He's in a Samaritan village. And this, of course, is a Samaritan woman. 
And what you need to know about Samaritans is that, like the Jews, they are descended from the ancient Israelites, uh, but they actually practice their religion somewhat differently. Uh, so, for instance, they believe that the, the temple shouldn't be located in Jerusalem, but they believe it should instead be located slightly north on uh, Mount Jerusalem. Uh, and secondly, they accepted as scripture only the first five books of the Bible. The first five books of the Bible, which of course are Genesis, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. I think, yeah, we got it. We got it. You're doing good. You're doing good. And because of those differences, Jews and Samaritans, they considered each other heretics, and they did not have anything to do with one another. And so I spent some time this week trying to think up some modern-day comparisons uh, to wrap our heads around what this dynamic would be like. Uh, I want you to try these on for size. Uh, It would be like a townie from Southie approaching a well, only to be asked for a drink of water by some Yahoo in a Yankees jersey. Right? Can you get in the feeling for what this is like? It would be like AOC approaching a well only to be asked for a drink of water by some guy in a MAGA hat toting an AK-47. Right? Getting the feeling. The point is that Jews and Samaritans are like oil and water. They don't mix all that well. So when Jesus asks this woman for a drink, the person who is scandalized by that is the woman herself. And she makes it plain to Jesus. I love her candidness. She says, you are a Jew. I am a Samaritan woman. Why in the world are you asking me for a drink of water? She couldn't believe it because it was something that simply did not happen. So that is the second layer of scandal that we find in this story. It's this this intercultural, interreligious scandal that we have going on. And then, there there are actually more than this, but the third and final layer of scandal that we're going to get to today has to do with the particular circumstances of this Samaritan woman's life. Now, many commentators over the years, they pick up on the fact that this woman is going to the well alone and in the middle of the day to get water. And the reason that is strange is that back then, going to the well to gather water was generally a communal activity. Uh, So women would go to the well in the cool of the evening. They gathered there to talk and get all the water they needed for the next day's chores. So the fact that this woman is coming to this well alone and in the middle of the day would seem to indicate that she is either looking to avoid other people or that she is simply not welcome in her own community. And then on top of that, there's a really weird part in there of that conversation that she's having with Jesus. That bit where she tells, or Jesus rather, tells her to go and get her husband. The woman responds by saying, I don't have a husband. To which Jesus replies, you're right. You don't have a husband. You have had five husbands. And the guy that you're currently shacking up with, you're not even married to. So here it is incumbent on me to let you know that for the greater part of 2,000 years, interpreters of this passage 
interpreters of this passage who have, for the most part, been men. Interpreters of this passage who have often been celibate men. And what percentage of those celibate men were involuntarily celibate and chose to spiritualize their lack of gain by becoming monks and spending their days writing misogynistic commentaries on Bible passages? The world may never know, but it does feel like there's a PhD dissertation in there. But for the greater part of 2,000 years, the men interpreting this passage have taken the fact that this woman has had five husbands to mean that she is a serial adulterer. Many even speculate that the reason that she was at the well at noontime was because she was a prostitute trolling for customers. The vast majority of commentators over the years have said that. But I want to be clear with you all today that that is an interpretation and by no means a necessary interpretation. A far more interesting interpretation, equally supported by the text, is that this woman is some sort of black widow figure and she has poisoned five husbands and she's now currently seeking a way to off the sixth guy that she's living with. Equally supported by the text, far more compelled. You can almost hear Netflix writing out a check to write that show. But far more likely, however, it was that this woman could not bear children and so five separate times she was cast aside by different men And in a culture where women could not own property and were entirely dependent on men for their well-being, first their father and their brothers, and thereafter their, their husbands and their sons, it could very well be that she had no choice but to accept a living situation that the rest of her community uh, would have morally frowned on. But the God honest truth is that that we simply cannot know the reason that she has been married five times. But clearly, clearly there is something going on here, and that is why Jesus brings it up. So so that is the third layer of scandal that we see in this story today. The particular circumstances of this woman's life that somehow, for some reason or another, have made her an outcast in her own community. So we have the the scandal of propriety where Jesus is talking to this woman alone for a long time. We have this intercultural, interreligious scandal where Jesus is talking to a, a member of a group that his own people would have considered to be heretics. And then we have this scandal of circumstance where there's something unusual or untoward about this particular woman's life that has caused her to be an outcast. I don't care who you are for one little story That is an awful lot of scandal. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. Without regard to propriety, without regard to the cultural mores of his people, without regard to this woman standing in her community, Jesus wades happily into all this scandal in order to offer this woman the gift of living water. A gift, he says, will cause her never to be thirsty again, for it will become a fresh, bubbling spring within her, giving her eternal life. So clearly, here Jesus is speaking metaphorically. Uh, The gift he's offering this woman, the gift he came to offer to the world, of course, is the gift of God's love. That's pretty straightforward. 
But what's not so straightforward is that bit where he says that if she drinks this living water, she will never be thirsty again, for it will be like a bubbling spring within her. Right? That's not so straightforward, is it? And here's what I believe that he's getting at. Because so much of the story, it has to do with identity, with being a man, with being a woman, with being a Jew, with being a Samaritan, with being an insider, with being an outcast. And we human beings, we have a way of latching on to certain identities and just grounding our whole lives in them. It could be that this woman's whole life was grounded in her status as outsider, or it could be that, that with her, her track record that she was grounding her, her whole life in the identity of being someone's wife. Maybe some of us here are grounding our whole identities in being good parents. Maybe some of us are grounding our lives in being hard workers. Maybe even some of us here identify primarily as religious type people. But the problem with all of those identities, says Jesus, is that at the end of the day, they are lifeless. There is no grace in those identities. If you ground your whole life in being a good parent, and then your kid doesn't turn out the way you want them to, the way you expect them to, then you are by your own definition, the standard that you set up, you are a failure. There's no grace there. There is no life there. If you identify primarily as a hard worker, as a professional in a particular field, and then after 25 years of dedicated service, you show up to the office to discover that you have been downsized, here's a box, collect your things, don't let the door hit you on your way out, you are, by your own definition, by the standard you set up for your own life, you are an abject failure. There is no life there. There is no grace there. If you identify primarily as a religious type person, as a pastor, as a preacher, and you show up on a Sunday and give a flop of a sermon, as has been known to happen on repeated occasions, you are by your own measure, by the standard that you set up for your own life, you are a failure. There is no life there. There is no grace there, says Jesus. But instead, he's saying, ground your life in the living waters of my love. Because in these waters, there is nothing but grace. Grace that has already taken into account your every misstep in failure. Grace that, that has already covered your every mistake and misdeed. And if you ground your life first and foremost in your identity as a beloved child of God, you will never be thirsty again. Because in the eyes of God, you will never be weighed and measured and found wanting. And that love will bubble up like an eternal spring within you. And what's more, Jesus is saying in the story is that God will stop at nothing 
God will stop at nothing to bring that love to us that we might better ground our lives in it. This is why the Apostle Paul, in that famous passage in Romans 8, he declares that I am sure, he says, I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, and we'll add, nor scandal of any magnitude can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And what can we say, friends, this morning, but thanks be to God for that. Amen. Thank you.